So I was listening to a podcast recently, and the guy said that he really hated movies. And he gave an explanation that I thought was pretty interesting, which was, they're just suffering. He said, every movie these days is just, you meet the heroes, you like the heroes, you, meet, you make some new friends, and then the bad guys come, and the bad guys do bad things, and everybody suffers, and everything's terrible, and the guy gets tied to a chair and tortured, and everything's terrible. And he said, I just don't like that. And he said, to add insult to injury, it always turns out great at the end of the movie. It's always awesome by the end. The script always gets flipped. The good guys beat the bad guys. So it'd be one thing if all that suffering led to something new or different, but you know how it's going to go. So why do we have to put up with just things being bad? He's like, I've, I've had enough of that. I don't want to see, you know, Luke Skywalker get his hand cut off and be humiliated by Darth Vader. I don't want to see little hobbits crawling through Mordor, starving, their lips chapped. Because they, we know they're going to throw the ring in the thing. We know, we know, it's, we know how it's going to turn out. So why do we have to suffer? Why, why do we have to put up with the Avengers all getting toasted by, by Thanos? Well... I could not disagree more, and I think most people disagree, because if you look at the history of movies, they've made a billion movies. Like, before I was born, they made a billion movies that basically followed this formula. Good guys, bad guys, bad guys look like they're winning. Oh, the good guys won. Imagine that. And since I've been alive, they've made hundreds of these things every year, and if they keep making movies after I die, which I suspect they will, they're going to make more of these. We actually pay our entertainers a lot of money to tell us the same stories over and 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 over again. There's basically two stories, good versus evil and will the boy get the girl. And we want to know that most of the time the boy does get the girl and most of the time good defeats evil. But it's not much of a story if you don't have, you know, it looked like the boy's not going to get the girl and it looked like evil's going to win. We need these stories. We love these stories. And we pay Hollywood lots of money to be told. To, to, for them to evoke evil, like evil's really evil, and then for good to defeat it. Why is that? Well, it's because our lived experience isn't exactly like that. We can feel pretty overwhelmed by evil in our lives. And so we want our silly entertainments to give us hope again and again and again. The same hope. Hey, guess what? Good actually does triumph. We really, really, really love hearing that. No matter how predictable, we love hearing that because it's not how we always feel. Now, in our lives, sometimes things go well in our personal lives, but especially when we look out there, when we look at Russia and Ukraine Whatever you think about that, there's lots of man's inhumanity to man there. There's lots of evil in that situation, right? When, when you think about something like abortion, it just it boggles your mind to think you live in a country where they slaughter little babies, millions, every year. And, you're, and there's, it's institutionalized. It's the government. It's the people in charge saying that it's a good thing. Uh, 
sometimes these things do intersect with us. Some of us have worked jobs or work jobs where if you go in, you really know you can't speak your mind. You really know you can't be a Christian at work. You really know if you just read certain passages from the Bible or acknowledged certain basic truths that the Bible has in it, that you could lose your job, that you could get in big trouble. You know when you go to a family gathering that your family or your friends are part of a culture that basically hates God or hates his law at least, which equates to the same thing. And so you're surrounded by evil. And if I may use the word, it's systemic. It's institutionalized. There's people in charge of it. And there's organizations that put it out there. What what about pornography and temptation? Doesn't it boggle your mind that you carry a pornography machine around in your pocket? You don't have to use it that way. I hope you don't use it that way. But isn't it kind of annoying to know that it's a really perfect device for that and that you carry it around in your pocket and that you live in a society that allows and encourages you to participate in that kind of evil? Have you ever thought about the temptations and the things that you fight that in another time and another place might be easier because there might be some support from the government? Have you ever thought about the places where maybe laws, censorship, things like that can actually be helpful to us in our godliness? The world's a dark place. Some, some places it intersects with our lives. Some places it seems like it doesn't. But more and more, it kind of feels like it does. feels like it's going to more and more, I think. The world is a riot of rebellion against God and against his justice. And we feel that. We experience that. So one way we deal with it is we watch movies. One way we should deal with it is read the Psalms, the prayer book of God's people. The great thing about songs as Ben started to open up last week when he talked about Psalm 1. Songs tune your heart. They tell you how to feel. It's it's what I love about even cheesy pop songs, right? Like when you go through a nasty breakup, you need your breakup songs to just help you process it. And it doesn't matter how cheesy they are, you need them. And I think that's a good thing. When you're in love, you need, you know, wise men say, you need Elvis. You really need him. Because you need to express your love. That's what songs do. We have feelings and they help us channel them. And the Psalms are the prayer book of God's people. They're the song book of God's people. And so they're designed to help form our character and form our feelings and help us deal with the big things that we feel, including a problem of evil. And as Ben was talking about last week, Psalm 1 and 2 are kind of like a a mission statement for all of the psalms. Some people even think that they're actually one song, and there's some evidence for that. The way that this psalm ends, you'll see the very last line kind of feels like it's a payoff to both psalms. And so with all that in mind, that's the big picture. Let's, Let's read Psalm 2 together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Psalm 1 was kind of dealing with the individual. Don't be a scoffer. Do be in God's word. Personal. This is kind of a big picture. And let me, here's my first question. This psalm was written by David. Why do the nations rage? People plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed. So this is written many years before Christ. Who, Who is this psalm talking about? Is it talking about King David? Is it talking about Jesus? Anointed sounds pretty Jesus-y. Who's it talking about? Anybody want to take a guess? Jesus! Yes, the most Sunday school answer of all time, and it's the right one. Now, is it also talking about David? Yes, of course it is. This is another example of our old friend from Ruth, typology. Except for it's almost not, because in Ruth, Boaz is a type of Christ. So it's like he's a he's a if I may put it this way, he's an imperfect picture of Christ, but he's a perfect picture of Boaz, right? He's a, he's a metaphor, and metaphors only go so far. This is kind of the reverse of that. This, this psalm works perfectly, maps perfectly onto who Christ is, but it uses such exalted language that it almost doesn't work for who King David is in his personal life. Now, does it work? Yes. Yes, it does. But, but, but this is a messianic psalm. This is a prophetic psalm. This psalm should give you faith because you see somebody just very blatantly talking about Jesus thousands or hundreds of years before Jesus was born. This psalm refers to Jesus. So I wanted to go through basically three things in this psalm. And just, I want us to keep in mind the problem of evil. So point number one, the nations rage. Uh, Verse one, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So just to illustrate how this kind of thing can work, what I was just talking about, like who is this about? This, this little section is actually about three different things. It's about, David is talking about the rulers of his time. He is saying, I have become king. I was anointed king by the prophet Samuel, literally anointed with oil. And now I am king. And now there are nations raging against me. And there are peoples plotting in vain like some of my people. And if you know the story of David, of course, that's all that happens, right? So... It has a very direct reference to what was happening to David now, or then. 
It also has a direct reference that the Bible explicitly calls out to what happened to Jesus that we're celebrating this week. This is kind of sort of a Palm Sunday sermon, even though it's not really a Palm Sunday sermon. But in Acts 4, after Peter and the apostles go before the Pharisees, Peter explicitly mentions this psalm as being the story of the rulers plotting against the anointed one. This psalm actually gets mentioned a lot in the New Testament. Again, it can really bolster your faith when you see the unity of the scriptures. So it's, it's a fun thing to look for. It also refers, so it refers to David and what was going on with him. It refers explicitly and specifically to what happened to Jesus this week. And it refers big picture to all of time, right? To the rulers and kings, to the people who have been given authority by God. That's every ruler, that's every king, that's every governor, that's every CEO who want to break God's fetters, break his bonds. And again, you don't have to look very far to see these people. They are, I don't know, the CEO of Disney. The, I like Disney. I've got Disney Plus. But the CEO of Disney, the, the president of the United States, the, the, the Colorado governor who just signed a law enshrining abortion for all nine months up to partial birth in his state's law. The people who lie about trans things, who, who, say, who start with Genesis 2, the very beginning of the Bible, and say, where it says God made man and God made woman, they say that's not true. These people, by and large, don't say, I'm rebelling against God. Let us cast off God's fetters. Some of them actually do. But by and large, they don't say that. And yet, that's one of the things you have to notice about this. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The Lord and the one that he anointed Jesus Christ, his son, his only begotten son, are a package deal. You don't say, I love Jesus, but I don't really love his law. This is all through the New Testament. If we love him, we will obey his commandments. That phrase gets repeated a lot. Just read 1 John. It's all over the book of 1 John. So it doesn't matter whether they're saying I don't like Jesus, I don't like God, I don't like their law. If they are standing against God's law, if they are thumbing their nose at God's law, then they are the people described here. The other thing to notice about the wicked and the way that the wicked rage is that they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That is how they refer to God and to his law. Now, how does Jesus describe his yoke, his burden, the, law, the, the cords and fetters that he puts on us. How does, how does Jesus describe that? Easy and light. That's right. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But the wicked view it as cords and fetters. And that is a really good tell, right? I remember 
like a month or two, I think we were, we were still in Bloomington. We were, we were not in Evansville, so don't worry. This isn't about any of you. But a month or two before we had Theo, Meredith was babysitting another baby. Let's call him Rufus. And I got stuck with Rufus. I mean, I had the wonderful joy of babysitting Rufus because Meredith had to run and do something for, for a couple minutes. And Rufus just would not stop crying. He just cried and cried and I gave him toys and I let him tear apart a piece of paper and I let him eat a piece of paper and I, I let him do everything. And Rufus would not stop crying. And, I was just, and it was just this weird, it felt like a God thing somehow. I, I still haven't quite figured out how, but it felt like discipline somehow or like, get ready, you're going to have a baby. But I just thought, man, this is really unpleasant. I do not like this. I do not like having this baby. This is hard work. He will not stop crying. Well, then, of course, we had Theo, and since that time, there have been many days where I have done the exact same things for Theo, and she won't stop crying, and nothing that I give her works, and, you know, I've had that classic baby experience, and I don't feel the same things that I felt about Rufus. I I love, because, and why? Because I love Theo, because I love Theo, and so what was cords and fetters for Rufus is a light and easy burden for Theo, even the unpleasant things, right? And so when people love God, it's not that all of the work that we do, all the, all the suffering that we do just becomes daffodils and roses, right? But Jesus is not lying when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Even the unpleasant things, we have are the love of God and, and it empowers us, it energizes us. So the first kind of little application is if you hate the law of God, if it is cords and fetters to you, if you're always complaining about what you have to do to be a Christian, then you really need to check yourself. You really need to check yourself because that's exactly what the people raging against God, the rulers and kings raging against the God in this psalm do. So the nations rage, they, they come together, they come against God, they devise all their plots, they bring all their weapons, everything they've got. How does God respond? Well, that's the next thing that I want you to notice. So number one, the nation's rage. Number two, God laughs. Verse four, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God is not feeble. God is not bothered. He's not even like, oh, they're bringing all their best stuff, so I guess I better get my weapons ready. No, he's just meeting the whole villain team up, all the nations, all the nukes, all the plans, all the best people at the CIA, whatever. He just laughs. It's not a big deal. This is a, maybe a silly analogy, but when, when I was a boy, my favorite movie hero, we'll stick with movies today, was Clint Eastwood and like A Fistful of Dollars and his spaghetti westerns and stuff like that. And the thing that was cool about Clint Eastwood is when the bad guys were coming down the dusty street to, to shoot him or whatever, where another hero would be like, oh no, I've got to get my gun. I got to get ready for the bad guys. I got to make sure, you know, even John Wayne would be like, all right, let's make sure, Pilgrim, that we got our thing figured out. Clint Eastwood just sits there with a smirk on his face. Because that's how cool Clint Eastwood is. He's just, he's got this. That's how manly, that's how cool. Like, 
he's not bothered. These guys were dead the second that they decided to get up in his business, right? That's what happens when you mess with, with Dirty Harry, right? You, you're, you're dead. There's no contest, which means he doesn't have to be worried about it. Well, that's a silly example, but again, why do we like movies like this? Why do guys respond to that kind of thing? Why, what is built into us? Is there something good? Well, yeah, I think so. I think so. I think there's a lot of bad things that are built into us that make us respond to those kinds of movies too, but that's not what this sermon is about. God is not bothered. It just doesn't matter. They were dead the second that they came against him. And when we deal with the problem of evil being in this world, evil intersecting with our lives, making us suffer, making other people suffer, making people out there suffer, we are sometimes tempted to ask, where is God? What's, he's, what's he doing? Was heaven sleeping when this or that happened, when the Holocaust happened, when babies are aborted? Well, one thing that was fascinated about, fascinating about reading old dead guy commentators about this passage who lived in much more strenuous, difficult times where they really might die for their faith and where they knew people who had died for their faith is they would often say, hey, sometimes when we're waiting for God to laugh or to act, to take out the bad guys, it's because, and he's not doing anything, it's because he's laughing. It's because he's saying, oh, really? All right, do, do your worst. He is subjecting them to derision. One quote from an old dead guy said, let us therefore assure ourselves that if God does not immediately stretch forth his hand against the ungodly, it is now his time of laughter. Sometimes when heaven is quiet, it's not because God is asleep. It's not because he's busy. It's the sound of quiet contempt. And that's, that's a scary thing for the wicked, right? I mean, if you've had, if you imagine a good dad and someone comes up to him and says, hey, Junior just socked his sister in the face. And let's, let's say in this analogy that dad chuckles a little bit. Why might dad chuckle in that moment? Well, it might be because he's lazy. It might be because he's a bad dad who's just going to let it slide. But there's another kind of dad where if you say, hey, Junior socked his sister in the face and he chuckles, that means it's curtains for Junior. Like, it is so over. And dad, in this moment, holds Junior in such contempt that dad's just like, <laughs> okay. That's a certain kind of man, right? And not a bad kind of a man. So, we need to remember this. When evil things happen in our, our lives, when evil things happen, big picture, God has contempt for the wicked. God has contempt for the wicked. And sometimes he's just letting them do their worst because their worst is so pathetic. And then what's going to happen? Well, it's the next thing I want us to notice. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So God, in his judgment, in his wrath, when the wicked want to cast off his law, what does he do? He actually raises up his son, Jesus Christ, which is, which is fascinating. Because when we think of Jesus, I think, and we're going to have six weeks. I'm really excited about this series. We're going to start next week. We're going to have six weeks to go into depth on all these things. But the ways, you know, we bring all these conceived, preconceived notions to who Jesus is, and many of them are very, well, for lack of a better word, weak. They're just, he's the lamb who's led to the slaughter. Or I think of, because Facebook keeps showing me ads for that, the chosen TV show thing. Actually, it's not ads for chosen. It's ads for the Catholic sleep app. And they got Jesus from the chosen to hawk for the Catholic sleep app. So the ad is like a woman and her husband and they can't get to sleep and the baby's crying. And she's like, ah, oh no. And then she hits the app and then Jesus is sitting in bed and he's like, be still my daughter. And it's really stupid. But I have those kinds of things stuck in my head. I don't think of, oh, God wants to bust up on his enemies. He's going to raise up his son. Also, and we'll talk more about this over the next six weeks, Jesus is God, isn't he? Why would, why would God need to raise up God? Well, the answer to that might lie in a little passage from Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5, which I will read. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you know the story, that's Palm Sunday. Jesus comes in to this town and they're all waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna! Hosanna! And then less than a week later, some of those same voices, crucify him! And he says, Father, forgive them. They know what they, not what they do. And he dies. And he is resurrected. And it's a beautiful story of God's kindness. And so it is. But we can't forget this part, which is God has raised him up and given him a rod of iron. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus rules with a rod of iron. And once again, that rod of iron gets mentioned a lot, especially in the book of Revelation. It comes up a bunch in the apocalyptic literature of the Bible. When Jesus comes back again, it's with a rod of iron. And what does that mean? That's like King Arthur with Excalibur, right? It's the weapon of weapons. Nothing stands in its way. All foes are crushed, destroyed. Everything that stands in his way is cut down. Nobody and nothing stands. 
that is Jesus, and that is what he will do to the wicked, which is pretty intense. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we have a real picture, a very intense picture in this psalm of God's wrath. And it is a scary thing, particularly because it is quickly kindled. Yeah, God might subject his enemies to quiet contempt for a while, but then when he strikes, boom. I was behind, a few months ago, around Christmas time, I was behind a car accident. Fortunately, I think everybody was fine at the end of the day, but I saw a car flip and I had to slam on my brakes so that I didn't smash into the car. And when I got out of my car, in kind of a daze to see if I could do anything, there was pizza scattered across the, the ground from this car that had flipped. And the people got out and they were okay. But it's kind of a good illustration for life, right? One moment you're eating pizza in your car and the next moment the pizza is scattered across the highway. Disaster can come upon us at any time. And God's wrath is quickly kindled. It's a scary thing. So what do we do with that? Well, we rejoice with trembling. That's what it tells the rulers and the kings to do. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Our love of God does have to have some real understanding. God is a father. He is good. We do love him. And and when we fear him, we do not fear him in a, a slavish kind of groveling way like you would fear an enemy. But, we, but there is a real element of fear, a real element of this is God. He holds heaven and hell in his hands, and that's a big deal. And his wrath is quickly kindled against those who rebel against him. So we need to rejoice, rejoice in God, and rejoice with trembling. And then, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And remember, this verse is addressed to kings, to presidents, to CEOs, to rulers. We can extrapolate all the principles for us. What it's actually saying is, hey, you plotted against God, or maybe you wanted to. Here's what you should do instead. And interestingly, it's not bow down. It's not grovel, you worm. It's embrace the sun or kiss the sun lest he be angry. Give yourselves wholly to him. Love him. And then, and then, you are not in the path of destruction when it comes. These are intense things. This is an intense psalm. Like I said, it's kind of a template because you go through the book of Psalms and over and over and over and over and over again, it's going to have these kinds of things. I mean, we just sang Psalm 3 today. Did anybody find it weird that we said, what is it, like, break their jaws, uh, destroy the wicked? I mean, do you ever stop and think what you're singing? 
I do sometimes. I, back, you know, when I was a kid, one of the big songs was, there is a fountain filled with blood. And I was, a fountain filled with blood? What horror movie is this? Who's picturing this and thinking this is a sweet picture? It is a sweet picture because of who Jesus was and what he did. But also, it's a fountain filled with blood. Let's, let's think about these things in a real way. So it, God is scary, but that allows us to do things, two things. Number one, we draw near to him. We embrace him. We give ourselves wholly to him. And then we have nothing truly to fear. We throw ourselves on Jesus Christ, who did die for our sins, who was resurrected, who does reign, and who promises to make us fellow heirs with him. God is kind. God is compassionate. The other thing that we do with this is we take hope in the destruction of the wicked. We are happy, not in a vindictive, petty, nasty way, but we are happy that you know, if we can be happy watching a movie that Thanos isn't going to get it over on those Avengers forever, can't we be happy in the real world that the bad guys don't win, that we have a God who does have a rod of iron and he will crush them? We have a longing for justice. I mean, I think it really is why we watch all this stuff a lot of the times. And so... Let's bring it to God, not just bring it to Hollywood. The final thing that I'll say is, I think we all need to take refuge in God. We all need to embrace him. And if you're wondering how to do that, and you've already given your life to Jesus, you already said this, and you're like, what's the next step? I think the next step is just to see the places where this psalm actually maps onto you. In other words, we all have things in us that rebel against God, that rage against God, things we don't want to give to him. Whether it's our job, whether it's our spouse, whether it's our children, whether it's whatever it is. I don't know what it is for each one of you. As for some people, it might just be food or alcohol. or We all have things where we're like, I'm not going to give that to God. I'm not going to submit to God there. I'm going to rage against him because I just don't like it. And we must give those things to God. We must fear him in a way that drives us to give those things to God. And then we must throw ourselves on his kindness and on his goodness, realize that he is a good God and we can take refuge in him at the very points where we want to hold something back. We must give that to Jesus. So let's do that. And let's pray.